0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the March 13th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic DiZutti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on recreational marijuana sales, hitting a new record in January of over $36 million, bringing in $2.35 million of tax revenue to the state of Colorado. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, do we think this trend is going to continue?
1: It'll continue to grow for a while, but let's remember, soon other states will also decide to legalize the sale of recreational marijuana, so Colorado should enjoy this while it can.
0: David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Is there going to be enough progress in these sales where some of these lawsuits will lose some of the popularity with Colorado seeing some money coming back to them?
2: No, because the people who are bringing the lawsuits uh, are so adamantly opposed on the issue the fact that it's making money for the state just makes it all the more perhaps morally outrageous uh... to some of them the, the revenue that the state is getting is part of the savings, but it's only a small part of the social cost savings. We have the police who are now focused on more important things to protect the public, jail space not being wasted, prosecutorial time not being wasted, and most important of all, people's lives not being messed up by having to hire a lawyer and go to court and have something on their record uh, for their lives so that the social cost uh, savings are, are enormous.
0: Well, speaking of lawyers, we are fully staffed this uh, this week <laughs> on CIO. Uh, Craig Silverman from uh, uh, a attorney with all Silverman Olivas and, and radio talk show host at KNUS. Uh, what's your take?
3: First of all, what the heck is wrong with hiring a lawyer, David Koppel? <laughs> um, marijuana is more firmly entrenched than ever. And with the tax revenue, that's the case. The Quinnipiac poll is showing 58-38 in terms of for versus against. This is going to be here unless the courts do something, because any politician who is a prohibitionist will probably not win elective office. I think we saw that in the recent election.
0: Mm -hmm. Penn Tate, attorney with Greenberg Traw also a long-time state lawmaker, wrap it up for us. I,
4: I think it's long
3: been entrenched and
4: established. What it is now is out of the shadows. And so we have uh, a trend that I think will continue. I agree with Patty until other states, ironically, maybe Kansas and Oklahoma legalize it, <laughs> um, and the fact that we're now seeing some of the savings from some of the social costs avoided um, in our court systems and criminal justice systems. So the money's just a bonus. Denver's independent monitor reported this week that only 25% of
0: the incidents involving the use of force were recorded over the last six months of the Denver Police Department's body camera pilot program. The department challenged the numbers, saying far more incidents were caught on video, and the study included many officers who weren't wearing cameras. Uh, Patty, this is one of the situations where I think the headline looked pretty bad. When you looked at it, the, the police department had a pretty good point, that... The study that um, the independent monitor looked at included a lot of sergeants that weren't wearing the cameras at all, so obviously weren't getting any video there. What do you think about the prognosis and the future of body cameras in Denver?
1: Well, I still think body cameras are a good idea. It's probably smart to turn them, wear them, and turn them on if you really want to make sure you are protecting both the people you are out to protect and your own reputation if you're a cop. Uh, There are more concerning stats in this report, though, than just the percentage that weren't captured on film. How about 80 um, excessive force claims in District 1, where only a quarter were caught on camera? The fact that there are 80 claims is more worrisome, I think, than the fact that only a quarter were caught on camera. So good for Nicholas Mitchell for staying on this issue, a good appointment by Hancock, and good for Governor Hickenlooper because he set the things in motion for an independent monitor. It's one of the reasons we hope we are not going to have the same kind of trouble they've seen in Ferguson, both in reality and with perception.
0: David, do you see body cameras uh, being proliferated with not only Denver but other uh, major police departments throughout the metro area?
2: Sure, and there's a bill in the legislature to mandate them, which I don't think is a good idea at this point. I think the, it, it's good that we have a pilot program going on in Denver, which was just in, in the downtown district. And people say, "Well, it hasn't changed the number of complaints against the police," or, th- uh, but it's just a pilot program. You know, uh, only about 125 officers in a large city, where you've probably got over over a thousand officers out there. It also shows that there is at least some resistance uh, by some of them uh, to having these. The reasons why some weren't some incidents weren't recorded, was, well, the the, the video wasn't good enough. That's fine, because things happen, and you're not always facing in the, the right direction. But others were, were, there was no battery in the camera. Well, part of when you go out to do your shift on, on patrol is you make sure that the ammunition in your gun is fresh, mm-hmm. uh, that that, the, that your radio has properly functioning batteries on and on. This has got, So this ought to be another thing that gets checked and, and works properly. And some situations where... I mean, a minority of officers just didn't turn them on, which is kind of odd. It's, yeah, if somebody comes comes at you from the side and you're walking down the street and attacks you, you don't have time to turn on a camera. But if you're getting out of a car uh, to write a ticket or whatever, then as you, before you exit the car, the camera ought to be on. Craig, as a former
0: prosecutor uh, within the city of Denver, do you feel there's going to be any excuse that, that city donors going to have to not make this a practice for the entire department? I mean, I realize there's cost of the storage of the, the media, but after that, is there any other excuse the city can really rely upon?
3: Uh, just a human error, technological failure. You know, this new technology is a blessing and a curse. It's like the advent of DNA as a forensic tool. Now juries jury is expected in every case. Pretty soon, juries will expect, well, where's the body camera? If you don't have it, maybe it's a problem for a prosecutor. And if an officer said, oh, I just failed to turn it on, then his testimony might be suspect. What's the good reason for you not to have it on? This is uh, an interesting situation, and the independent monitor inevitably becomes adversarial to the rank and file of the police force. So it's a delicate situation, and these body cameras... Uh, and the willingness of the rank-and-file to turn them on, that's going to be an issue.
0: Penn, uh, looked like from some of the reports from the police department, not from the independent Monitor, showed that uh, one of the officers that was supposed to use a body camera was disciplined for not using it. Is the police department going to need to step up that discipline to make sure that they 're backing up the whole use of body cameras so that the the police themselves have more credibility with the new, this new technology
4: uh, absolutely uh, you know we 've talked before about the fact that these body cameras play two significant um, roles number one, they help give you some sort of additional visual evidence with regard to claims of police excessive force, but number two, they help exonerate officers who haven't done anything incorrectly and so um, the good thing about the monitors report and i agree with patty i think nick has done a great job and i think he's raising the right issue but the good thing about the report and all the back and forth about the details is at least now there appears to be the presumption within the department that we have to use these cameras we need to work out the details and making sure officers are checking them like their weapons and their radios and everything when they go out and they standardize when you turn them on, when you turn them off, when you download them, when you get off your shift. Those are some of the details we've got to work on. What's going to be fascinating is the example you cited. Invariably, there are going to be some officers who will not comply, and it's because they don't want their actions caught recorded. And those are the officers that the city's going to have to decide whether to terminate them. Mm-hmm. A bill that
0: will repeal the 2013 Ammunition Magazine Limit Law passed a state Senate committee this week and has four Democratic co-sponsors. However, if the bill makes it out of the state house, Governor Hickenlooper has already hinted that he would veto the bill. David, this has been controversial for, I guess, now officially a couple of years. Uh, Are you surprised that Hickenlooper has already put out the preemptive strike, if you will, about a potential veto?
2: It's probably a sensible move for him to do just to make sure that Speaker Hullinghorst in the House sends this to a kill committee rather than a place where it could get a, an open-minded hearing because it's generally agreed that there's the votes on the floor of the House to also pass the re- repeal and undo the mistake. And then the governor would have to either admit he made a mistake, which he was already quite frank about doing when he was speaking to the sheriffs uh, in June and said it wouldn't do the bill, the ban accomplishes absolutely nothing, but for whatever whatever reason he's not willing to follow up on that. He keeps coming back to this talking point he has, which uh, there's not many in favor of this bill, is that supposedly 30 to 40 percent of shootings of police officers involved guns that had a a large magazine, so-called, there's two things he doesn't understand. One is he's citing an old study, and it was about magazines over 10 rounds. So the Colorado's band of magazines over 15 doesn't really back that up. The second thing, even if we're talking about 10-round magazines... The evidence, the data is that 47% of magazines currently possessed by, law, by American citizens are over 10 rounds. So if, you got, if that, your general background supply is 47% and the police shootings are 30 to 40%, then they're underused in the shootings of police officers, which actually makes sense because the larger guns are less concealable, less likely to be taken out on the streets where they might get involved in a confrontation with a police officer after the, say, the robbery of a 7-11 goes awry.
0: Craig, do you feel that uh, Governor Hickloper would be more amenable to the idea if it was not a repeal of the magazine limit, but actually an amendment saying growing it from 15 to, say, 30?
3: Um, possibly, but that ship has already sailed, and you cite statistics, but the stat I've heard Hickenlooper's site is zero. He says there are zero situations where somebody has demonstrated that they needed a 30-round clip to defend their house or themselves. And uh, if you have something to the contrary, I'm sure you bring it up, but that being the case, I think John Hickenlooper has broad political backing saying, why do we need 30 rounds? Isn't a 15-round clip enough? And uh, I don't think he's in trouble. Yes, I'm aware of the recalls and how certain people get worked up about this issue, but the broad population of Colorado, if they had to say, is it okay to restrict 30-round clips? Everybody draws the line differently. Machine guns for some people are okay, but the government says no. I think the average person says, why do you need a 30-round clip? Why isn't a 15-round clip enough? And John Hickenlooper says he agrees with that, and I think most Coloradans agree with him.
0: Penn, did, as David asserted, did Hickenlooper essentially issue the kill order on this one so that Speaker Hollinghorst will give it to the appropriate committee?
4: I, I think the kill order was issued before the session started. He was just reinforcing the fact... <laughs> That that I'd prefer not to see this on my desk, and, and I think the the House will oblige him and will kill the bill um, in committee somewhere. I don't think it'll see the floor uh, as well. It probably shouldn't. I think I think Craig is right. I think most people believe that, uh, and especially in a state where you, you we have some fairly con- um, liberal concealed carry um, laws, I, I, I think people are concerned that you don't need to walk out on the street too heavily armed. Um, in this in this day and age, so I think the the bill is going to die in committee.
0: Patty, is this the last we'll hear about this issue, at least for this session?
1: Well, you never hear the last of an issue in Colorado. So we will. I think it will be killed this session. I'm sure it will come back back again someday. But when. If it, for some reason, makes it to the governor's desk, which I doubt it will, I think it will get killed first, you can count on him doing a much better job this time explaining his position on the bill. He's obviously gone back, done the study. So even though David may not agree with his rationale, I think Craig has pointed out some very useful things that the governor will be saying if it gets to that point. But I do think it will be killed first. But we'll see it again.
0: That's true. Senators Michael Bennett and Cory Gardner announced they are co-sponsoring legislation that would install new rules in the Senate during the government shutdown. The bill stipulates that the Senate would be required to take attendance every hour for every day as long as the shutdown continued under punishment of arrest. Uh, Craig, this got some great attention, and and maybe that's what the whole bill is about. But just the idea that, hey, when there's there's a Republican and a Democrat working together, and if a shutdown's going to happen, the senators have to stay there and work it out. They they, they can't go home. They can't uh, go hide somewhere. Is it politically popular enough to actually get some support, or is it just going to get headlines?
3: I doubt it, but it's fun to think about all those senators being arrested, although if you believe some of the Democrats, uh, 47 senators should have been arrested for writing an open letter to Iran. I had the great privilege and pleasure of being in the Capitol Tuesday before last for the Netanyahu speech. And after that speech, which was attended by Cory Gardner, And Michael Bennett, I had the pleasure of meeting with them both, and I saw them interact. These are amiable individuals, and I do think they have bipartisan instincts. But as for this legislation, as fun as it is to contemplate, I think it's just political theater and designed for a good headline, and they got it.
0: Penn, uh, you're a former state lawmaker, and, and frankly, I think sometimes uh, there's a little more rationale at the State House and State Senate than there is in the uh, U.S. version. But do you think this can go any further? And could it catch on? I mean, could, could people at least talk about it before? it uh, fizzles away.
4: That's going to be the interesting thing to see. I I think it is political theater. I think it's a cute idea, but what a lot of folks don't realize is it's actually law and practice in many states. In Colorado, we have the legislature has something called a call of the House or a call of the Senate, and if a call is invoked, the state patrol has the authority to go physically retrieve legislators and bring them back to the state capitol. So it's an interesting concept to think that you might invoke something like that um, in Washington DC and the idea of an hourly roll call they would have to radically change how Congress operates on a day-to-day basis to facilitate something like that. But I think the most interesting thing about this proposal is you, you know this is about the fourth or fifth time I've heard people talk about it this week And they say things like, well, yeah, they're getting paid a whole bunch of money. You know, if they shut down the government, maybe they ought to sit there and figure it out rather than go home and claim it's somebody in Washington and everybody's left Washington. So it's going to be interesting to see if this picks up steam. Patty, this
0: also seemed like a pretty... uh not only a fun move, but I think a smart move by Bennett and uh, Garner uh, for both their, uh, Bennett's going to be running for re-election far sooner than uh, Garner will, but it's a good bipartisan look. They're kind of arm in arm this idea, taking on the whole gridlock of Washington, especially during a shutdown. Do you think that will come across to their constituents here in Colorado?
1: It's certainly not going to hurt. So you've got the two Colorado senators, one Democrat, one Republican, playing nice together and going up against the silliness of the U.S. Senate and the fact that these people can earn that much money and just not show up. So I think they won good headlines. They're not going to win this bill going through, but they won good headlines, and that's good for Colorado and for these senators.
0: Uh, David, put, put your spin on this. Is there some merits? What's going on? Is it pure political theater? What value do they get here at home for this move?
2: only the article in the Denver Post and discussion of their <laughs> stupid idea like here <laughs> you know so this is how they, it's great that they're both smart and bipartisan and amiable and they come up with this preposterous idea It's always been the rule that if there's a quorum call, for example, and you need to get the quorum, then the president of the Senate can order uh, the Capitol Police to go out and find people. In fact, Senator Bob Packwood got dragged back in, actually carried in feet first uh, for a famous quorum call, I believe, in 1988. So that's nothing new. But the idea that you're going to say you have to sit at your desk in the Senate and you're going to take roll every hour, well, you've seen those on C-SPAN. You know how long it takes just to get a yes or a no or a present uh, every hour. So supposedly we're going to make them work and and try to to solve the shutdown. Well, you're going to be spending 25 minutes of that hour taking attendance and then if people were negotiating, maybe they're not negotiating by giving speeches on the floor of the Senate. Maybe they're meeting in an office in the Capitol with leadership and people from the White House and things like that. So even on its own terms, it is destructive of getting people to negotiate and work on things in person.
0: Although well, I have to imagine anyone in Colorado thinking about a senator being arrested and dragged back to them. That would be a pretty appealing thought. Uh, Let's look at this one. CDOT held a forum this week to review with potential contractors the $1.2 billion I-70 project in North Denver. CDOT is looking to bridge a $90 million funding gap with possibly a public-private partnership. And we talked about this issue a couple of times, and, and I'm not really getting into the details of the contractors here, but the fact that we're not hearing a lot about this whole plan of the potential of going through 270 and 76 around the entire area and just going straight to contractors. Does CDOT consider that not off the table?
4: You know, it's, it's an interesting conversation because w- when you when you hear this group, this United North neighbors, um, they're becoming more and more sophisticated in their messaging, and I think they're reaching a broader audience. Uh, you know, I, I, I often go to various events downtown and get with some of the downtown folks, and more and more people are talking about the point they're raising. And often what you hear is, number one, why won't the city meet with this group, and number two, why won't CDOT meet with this group? And someone the other day likened it to the whole um, issue CDOT had with U.S. 36 when they started doing the P3 and people felt there wasn't enough public discourse and meeting. Uh, And I think if CDOT's not careful, they may be accused of repeating the error of U.S. 36. I think the neighbors raise a good point. I think that the the chorus is growing, and more people want to see a comprehensive conversation about that bypass uh, option rather than just undergrounding I-70 through the Swansea, Elyria, and Globeville neighborhoods. And so meeting with contractors is all well and good. You need to start getting a sense of how how the project's got to be funded and what it'll cost and what it'll take. But I think it's a mistake to ignore these neighbors because I think they're beginning to turn public sentiment. And frankly, having Dennis Gallagher help champion some of their issues has not been a bad move on their part either.
0: Patty, what do you think should Cdot at least look a little bit more open that there's anything but just the the big dig? Well, not not the official big dig from Boston, but big dig esque here in here in Denver. Well,
1: you know, Cdot has said they've explored that, and the city, which has put itself, which is behind now the unburied project. Um, has said they've kind of looked at it, but what we haven't really looked at is what it would cost if you get a, could get a public-private partnership involved, which is now being looked at as the savior for the current plan, you know, the the platforms and the cap. So, if CDOT wants to keep people happy through what is going to be a, a torturous project, even if it works out smoothly, it's going to be years, it's going to be hugely expensive, they have to have, to have a much more transparent An understandable rationale for why their solution is the best way to go. Because every time you think about the detour, you know, taking it around this part of town, you think maybe that does make sense. And they've never really put out the numbers in a way that's convincing.
0: David, what do you think? Should we be hearing about the more of this other plan, or what? how should CDOT be handling this issue?
2: I would agree with Penn that, that listening to the neighbors is, is an important and essential thing to do, and in fact far more so than on U.S. 36, because there the construction doesn't harm any neighborhoods. People can argue on the, the policy of that, uh, but as the construction's going on, it hasn't, like, say, shut down Louisville or uh, Broomfield or anything like that. In contrast... They're replacing a bridge on I-70, the over I-70 at Colorado Springs. It was supposed to be done by December. It's still not done. According to the people of Idaho Springs, that's had a ec- catastrophic economic impact on that city. CDOT has its reasons why it's taken so long. But that's just replacing one bridge. Now, you look at what would be involved in this huge project, how, long, how that could impact neighborhoods drastically, it's really important to get to get all the, the people at the table and, and let them express their views. Craig, you have the last word.
3: I don't know why it's so important to me, but I'm a member of the Colorado Traveling Public, and among the reasons that I love Colorado over a lot of other states is we don't have toll roads. So whatever you do, don't put a toll on driving down I-70 through Denver, through Commerce City, or anywhere. And then next, uh, you've got to worry about safety. You know, this big dig, there are safety implications, so you want to be safe while you're driving, so do it efficiently in the most inexpensive way and with safety in mind.
0: Well, let's get to our very fair part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off.
1: Speaking of inexpensive ways, we are looking at the budget for the VA hospital that's being built out on Aurora <laughs> doubling from the original $600 million up. At least to 1.2, 1.3 million, and now we're hearing that unless Congress takes action and raises the cap above 800 million, we may not. We may have the construction stalling. That is an outrage. When what this is a facility designed to train, to help people who deserve our help more than anyone else.
0: Exactly, I couldn't agree more with that one, David.
2: Hillary Clinton, besides the preposterous lies and the usual contempt for the American people, which she displayed at her press conference, the substance of this server she had at her home, it wasn't secured. The, It was vulnerable to interception by foreign governments, such as the Russians or the Chinese, and to simplify it, the security for that line connecting to her, ultimately the State Department, was if you have a pass computer that comes with a password, and the password is set to default, D-E-F-A-U-L-T. You just leave it at that, rather than changing it to some other password. And that's what she did with security settings. She couldn't have done a better job of exposing confidential, high-level intelligence to our enemies.
3: Craig. March 3, 2015. I had the pleasure of being at that Netanyahu speech. Every member of the Colorado delegation was there but for Diana DeGette. Jared Polis, who invited me he was on the Netanyahu Escort Committee, but Denver's Diana DeGette didn't even show up. She's got to take votes on these issues. Seems to me Denver could elect a different liberal who might be willing to show up for a speech of that kind. Penn.
4: You know, the story just gets worse and worse in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, and, it, and it just— Highlights the fact why we in Denver need to be vigilant over these issues of uh, police and, and sheriff use of force because what, what's unraveling there is just horrifying.
0: Say something nice about somebody. Always difficult job, Patty.
1: Easy this week. Colorado Business Committee for the Arts gave their annual awards and it was an amazing array of not just award winners but finalists. Really great things being done for the arts in Colorado.
2: David. Senator Cory Gardner and the other senators who signed that letter, which had the advantage of smoking out Secretary of State Kerry, who now admitted that this agreement, which the Obama administration for the future development of of Iranian nuclear weapons, not only will not be submitted to the U.S. Senate as a treaty, it's not even going to be legally binding on its own terms. So certainly genocidal tyrants... uh, you can always trust them when they say they're not going to build weapons of mass destruction until 10 years from now when they're allowed to. Great.
3: Beautiful, beautiful Boulder, Colorado, that has given us Jared Polis, David Kopel, Penfield Tate, and Austin Porzak, who's going to be on my show tomorrow at 11 a.m. He <laughs> skied down the iron. Can you believe it? Skied down the first iron. What an accomplishment for a Boulder native, Austin Porzak.
4: Should be a great radio show. Penn. Uh, We are about to be treated to the return uh, of another Colorado favorite son, Philip Bailey and Earth, Wind & Fire coming back to Colorado after I don't know how many, 30 years in in the music industry. Someone born and raised right here at Denver General Hospital. So good to have Philip Bailey and Earth, Wind & Fire come back.
0: September, one of the best songs ever. I'm totally with you there. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you missed any part of the show or want to catch our web exclusive segment, CIO Post Game, check out cpt12.org or YouTube. I also send out our takes via Twitter, so please feel free to follow me there. Also, you can listen to our show as a podcast on iTunes, so be sure to check it out. We are wherever and whenever you need to be. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dazuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night.